Welcome to Recovery Guy Podcast. Welcome, welcome. Recovery is a lifelong process. Welcome, welcome. My name is Robert. I am the Recovery Guy. And you guessed it, if this is Tuesday, this must be the fix. I am so excited about the next two podcasts. Uh, Laura and I are actually in Southern California, took a, a week away for vacation, enjoying things. And I decided instead of throwing up a couple archived messages, I thought I would bring my uh, podcast studio, my portable podcast studio with me and uh, uh, download a couple uh, talks for you, but I actually did you a solid. I have in studio with me a friend of mine who we went to high school together. And then about five years ago, through you know uh, just a miraculous uh, opportunity, we hooked up again. And so today in studio, I've got with me Scotty B. We're gonna do two segments while I'm here in California. Um, you won't wanna miss either of them. So hopefully you're gonna to listen today and you'll listen Thursday for the checkup. Um, but, but I'm excited because uh, Scott does a lot more than just stay clean and sober. And I think you're gonna hear that in the story. And I think you're going to be encouraged. I wanna thank you, the listener, before we get started. Uh, last night, we went over 1,700 uh, listens in such a relatively short period of time, all organic, and it's all because of you. Thank you so much for being a part of this recovery message. Thank you for being an integral part of the recovery community. And thank you for encouraging me to let me know I'm on track. Now, the one thing I need to make sure that you do is send me a comment. I know that good is the enemy of best. <laughs> You've heard me say that before. And I need you to help me become better. So when you listen to my podcasts, if there's anything you think I could have expanded on or, or done a little bit uh, more thoroughly, or even a topic that you would want the recovery community to hear, uh, I need you to do that and sort of be my partner in this whole thing. And then of course, I want you to share, right? Subscribe. So when JJ does an upload of the podcast, you know, to Podbean and Spotify and Stitcher and iTunes podcasts and my website, you're notified that that's been launched and you can go right and listen. Uh, and then I want you to share, you know, every one of us in this whole thing we talk about recovery, whether it's alcohol, drugs, uh, bulimia, anger, pornography, compulsive overeating, and as you know, I qualify for all of them, right? So we know those people, and then there's the everyday person who wish their life would be a little bit better. We wanna to talk to them, because at the end of the day, to not improve in life would be like defying gravity that says I can coast uphill. And we know 
that that's not true. So thank you for everything that you've done. And right now I'm gonna introduce Scott to you and let him share a little bit about himself and then we'll, we'll have some questions and, and get some insights into this man who I not only call my friend, but my brother in recovery. So Scotty, welcome. Thank you, Robert. Great introduction. I appreciate that. And uh, it's nice to be on site here at Welcome Home Sober Livings for Women, Infants, and Children, number three. And we're actually doing this podcast right from one of our sober living. So thank you for uh, coming out to California and uh, having dinner Saturday Saturday night with uh, Melissa and myself, uh, with you and Laura. That was a great time. And uh, really appreciate uh, you coming on site here at Welcome Home 3 to do this podcast. Thank you. Well, you know, Scott, it's pretty obvious that... Uh, I care for you and your personal recovery, um, but I've always been attracted to people who are involved in service. You know, my entire lineage of recovered life, all the influential people who showed me the way 40 years later are still in recovery, you know, and, and as I've related before, my sponsor, Jack, uh, as he was dying in the, uh, the hospital bed, uh, he was still carrying the message at 44 years of sobriety. And, and I asked him again and I said, Jack, what should I tell them? What do you want your message to be, you know, in my life as I now speak and articulate on your behalf? And he said, Bob, just tell them that it works. So that's what Scott and I are gonna talk about. We're gonna talk about changes that we can make in our life that work. Does that sound good to you, Scott? That sounds fantastic. You know, to get a, a more of a sense of, of you, just uh, give me a little background about, you know, who Scotty B is and where you grew up and, and, and so on. And then we'll start to talk about uh, uh, some of the things of recovery. Absolutely. So I grew up in California, <clears throat> had the California lifestyle growing up. I uh, spent a lot of time on the beaches, the mountains, uh, rode motorcycles, was active in sports in school, uh, had a lot of hobbies. Uh, enjoyed a lot of things that uh, a normal childhood and, and uh, high school age kids would enjoy. And uh, so California, you know, we, we can be in the mountains and, and snow skiing in, in the morning and be over in, in uh, Huntington Beach having a little surf party too the same day. So uh, what a great what a great area to grow up in. And uh, so with me, uh, I went to the same high school as you, Robert. And uh, so we share a lot of the commonalities of that era. And that era, you know, is probably where a lot of my uh, influences came yeah. from. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, you know, I could elaborate more, but let's keep going. Yeah. No, and uh, I remember, and and I, we, you were a couple years behind me, more close to my, my brother's age than, than mine. Um, but uh, remember going out and getting high behind the handball courts, I do. you know, even before <laughs> school started, you know, mandatory. Oh, that's right. <laughs> mandatory to get ready and prime for that, uh, for that first class and then, uh, then hide in different places throughout the day to make sure we could keep that, uh, that stabilization mm. of, uh, of substances there. You know, uh, Scott, as you know, and, and as you, the audience know enough about me, I'm not a real war story person, right? Because if there's anything we don't need to do is, you know, share what it was like to, to do the substances and what happened as a result of that. What, what we're more concerned about, and I know Scott, you, you shared this as well, is how did it feel being who we were 
and that degree of comfortability. So as we dig into a few things today, what I want to know is, was there a point in your life where you came to believe that you processed emotion and thoughts different and apart from other people? Yes, and it, it wasn't until later, my later years that, uh, and I think actually when uh, I started hearing things in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous uh -huh. and some of the other 12-step-based programs that I got to attend to, uh, so I, I didn't really have that uh, feeling growing up that I was a lot apart from. Uh, I kind of fit in, so I'm different from a lot of people's stories in a lot of ways. They say they never fit in, but I always kind of felt I've had a place, and I think alcohol and other substances brought me to that place because there was a sense of belonging at that yeah. time. So if I hear you correctly, and, and, and thank you for, for differentiating that, if you wouldn't have had the alcohol and the drugs to, to alter that, do you think you would have felt a, a, an emotional or, or mental disconnect? From, from the situations or the environment? There was always a square peg and a round hole yeah. feeling uh, in my heart. And, and uh, even even with my peers at the time, through my childhood and adolescence, uh, you know, I always felt a little bit different. Uh -huh. um, but I had such a normalized childhood, I thought. Yeah. You know, I'm an adult child of an alcoholic. Right. For me, everything was just normal. Yeah. And back in the day, you know, house parties were the big thing. They dressed to the nines. They had the they had the ice chest made of a little metal barrel, yeah. and uh, you know so all that was normalized for me. But I am an adult an adult child of an alcoholic, yeah. and uh, so I think that you know, obviously now I know that played a part in uh, my life today. Okay, yeah. good. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, as as we both listen and, and folks, I've said it again. It's on my website. It's a uh, Father Martin has a chalk talk from the nineteen seventies. That is one of the most informative talks on addiction and how people feel in their course of life and essentially, you know, why people drink or use to the degree that those of us in recovery have as well. And it's just like, why does a compulsive overeater eat to the degree that we would eat knowing of the, of the health risks and the weight problems and all the things that are associated with that, let alone the personal shame of, of uh, knowing that that was our retreat or, or the, the person who is anorexic and doesn't understand how beautiful they are, so they need to starve themselves or all of the different things that we migrate to because we have that degree of uncomfortability that, like what you said, Scott, that square peg in the round hole. So Father Martin has this quote, and, and I'm going to paraphrase here. He says, it's a natural human response to seek relief from that which is uncomfortable. Again, great quote. Go to my website, listen to the Father Martin talk, and you're welcome. Um, to seek relief from that which is uncomfortable. Uh, what does that mean to you? And did you experience that degree of uncomfortable nature, that uncomfortability? So I think in my case, and I'm not trying to differentiate from other people, but um, as a child, uh, my mom would have me go to the refrigerator and get her beers. Mm -hmm. I would get the beer before I would round the corner into the living room, I'd have that beer popped and I'd turn it up. 
and I would take a couple guzzles. So uh, my environment, uh, I think for me, it was environmental. I loved the taste of beer as a child. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about a four or five year old kid. <laughs> and I loved the taste of beer as a child. And I loved my mom's ice cold beer breath in the summertime. Yeah. I got accustomed to that. So uh, by the time I got a drinking age, 11 or 12, I was uh, pretty acclimated to the taste and smell and feel and that ease and comfort uh -huh. that it gave me. And I say drinking age because I really started drinking yeah. at 12, you know, as a, but as a child also. Yeah. Well, when, when, we, when we talk about the things that are uncomfortable, so, so what I hear you say is even when you got to be 11 and 12, are you saying that you never allowed yourself to get uncomfortable? That's a good question. And I, it's something that I haven't touched on, I don't think so. <clears throat> Let me back up a little bit and see what, because I'm, you know, I want to look for childhood trauma. Yeah. And, and I think that everybody should become something happened somewhere yeah. to me. Uh, and, and so for me, environmental just impacted me. Yeah. You know, it impacted me heavily. I don't, I don't, I, you know, there's abandonment in, in, a, in, a, in being an adult child of an alcoholic, yeah. being a kid growing up. Yeah. Uh, I love my mom. She was yeah. fun. I love my dad. He was, he was a great guy. He was a great provider. And, and, uh, so there's nothing that I, that I look at that says, this happened to me then, and yeah. that happened to me then. Right. But uh, again, it goes back to, you know, when, when you're getting a whiskey put on your gums as a baby, and then you're popping your mom's beer at four years old, yeah. you know, there's that acclimation to that, and uh, the ease and comfort that comes along with that as a child. So when you, when you sought relief, um, you know, when you were 11 and 12 and going to junior junior high school, what were some of the things that you did? You know, for me, because I was involved in sports and choir and, and magical singing and uh, stayed very active. Um, however, that was really not quite enough because there wasn't, you know, there might have been the physical and mental escape, but I could never get lost on an emotional level where I would feel isolated while in a room of people. And, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. Uh, you know, I want people to get a sense of where you were coming from, because obviously you're alcoholic like I'm alcoholic. So we ended up in the same spot, right? Needing to be recovered or we were going to die. But sometimes how we get there is a little tweak and a little tweak there. You know what I'm saying? Yes, I do. And, and because our, our, uh, situations are very similar and I think we hung out with a lot of the same people sure. back then um, that I found myself uh, a little bit different even when I was drinking I found myself a little bit set aside from everybody else even when I was drinking uh, there was something I don't know if maybe it was a huge amount of entitlement yeah okay <laughs> you know that that set in that I was different than or better than or less than so all those things came into play. Alcohol made me fit in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It um, as as I've told people before, it uh, when when you're uncomfortable, or in my case, that I thought I had come from nothing, and I thought I was nothing, and and alcohol and subsequently drugs would make me feel like an almost, you know, yes. and uh, and for for those of us who have that. Um, that low sense of self-worth being an almost is really, it's like winning the game. Absolutely. And, and so, 
So as, as you're progressing and, and walk us through what you see now as a person of recovery, because obviously every 12 step, even spiritual programs will sort of have you recount your past to sort of figure out how you got to the point where you needed recovery, you needed some type of formal treatment, uh, whether that formality was the rooms of a 12-step program or you physically went into treatment. But along the way, we get warning signs. We ignore them, right? Mm -hmm. That's why we have this thing called a bottom because we hit one bottom and, and it's not painful enough. So we have to hit another one, another one. But, but we're logging these things along the way. And, and even though we know, it's like breathing. If, if breathing is an involuntary response, it's an involuntary muscle reaction, and, and using almost becomes our breath, right? So we learn to rationalize, we minimize, we deny our condition along the way, but as we hit these bottoms, our life is getting progressively worse. So did you notice those things, Scott? And when did you do it? How did it affect you? Did it give you spots of, uh, of, of sobriety or did you just drink or use a little bit more? Tell me about that. I think for me, uh, I, I was able, you know, I was a high school athlete also. And, and some, sometimes what I see in athletes especially is like at the end of the high school season, there's a, this this lull. There's, mm -hmm. there's no sense of uh, excitement. There's certain things that you, you become accustomed to and those things fall off. So I, I, I believe that, you know, a lot of that was when, when it ended and, you know, wasn't a big drinker in high school, but it, you know, wasn't a lightweight. And we always, you know, back then we talked about what oh, you got to maintain. But uh, for me, I think uh, mostly my life shaped uh, itself in a lot of different ways and characterized it like this. I'd get things and I'd lose things. Mm -hmm. I'd get the job, I'd lose the job. I'd get it, open it, run a business and lose the business. Everything that I touched, I couldn't keep. I was good at starting in on stuff. I was 100%. It's like when a bullet shot into the water. Bullet comes out of the gun at 456 miles or 456 feet per second. When it hits the water, it gradually slows. Yeah. And then and then it fizzles off. That's how I was able to do things. I was a good starter, but it, when it hit the water, it gradually slowed and fizzled off mm -hmm. and dropped to the bottom. So I kind of characterize it like that, you know. Um, I had some really good stuff that happened in my life. Um, and I can touch on some traumatic things and, and such as a divorce mm -hmm. and uh, my ex saying to me, and, you know, I came home one day and she said, uh, you got to go. And I was like, go where? And she said, anywhere but here. And I said, okay, well, when can I come back? And she said, not in this lifetime. Wow. And that was kind of one of those things where I think, you know, I knew I had a problem. Mm -hmm. Didn't know what to do with it, so I I got into abstinence. Mm -hmm. Okay, you know, I tried something different. I was in abstinence through that process, and life was worse than I could ever imagine. Being in abstinence, and not having any recovery, and not having this fallback on the the alcohol and the drugs that you know comforted me so mm -hmm. much. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, when you when you say that, let me let me double back on the on the Father Martin quote. Because obviously what you're describing is a high degree of uncomfortability with some events going on in your life. Mm -hmm. Starting things, not finishing things. The challenge with your marriage and confronting that it was over and you really probably, you probably knew why, but you know, since denial, right, is, yeah. is 
part of you know it's stamped into the DNA of everyone with redemption. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if only they would have, right? <laughs> right. I want a nickel for every time. Well, inflation. I want a dollar sure. for every time they say that, right? So let's go back to that. And and so so those were things that made you uncomfortable. What was your response? To those things and I'm not just talking about a, a verbal response but but your emotional or your 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 physical response to those things that um, you saw fall apart or your as I love the analogy of the bullet being fired and then hitting water that's so much of what we do when you when you saw that play out in your in your personal and professional life it made you uncomfortable what was your response to that did you wake up for a minute and say maybe it's me yeah, I've had those epiphanies. <laughs> it was very hard to take blame. It's very hard to take blame when you're in denial of it all. Yeah. But then, uh, you know, you kind of, kind of sit back and think, okay, maybe I need to do something different. Mm -hmm. But what is it? I didn't know what that was. Right. When I heard about recovery. I was like, oh my God, those people, you know, they suffer so much. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I had, a, I, had a, I had a perception of recovery. Mm -hmm. um, I had a couple interludes with the law early on yeah. and uh, that never seemed to deter me from moving forward into you know other things and, and situations uh, it was it was it was almost like a badge of honor if you got pulled in for a drunken public yeah. or something so you know for my sake I would say that uh, getting to the point where I realized I had a problem took a long long time right you okay know? in in the meantime you know we've all heard the adage those of us who have been in the rooms of recovery where we wanted to be somebody else, doing something else, somewhere else, you know, and, and we always thought it was more external than it had to do with who we were and self-esteem exactly. and how we viewed ourselves. So obviously, you know, prior to recovery, it's usually something like that. We, we just sort of wished we could be something, doing something more, but, but, but we were so confined to our alcohol and our drug use that took away that feeling of uncomfortability that it was almost like being chained to a rock where we knew the rock wasn't any good because it was preventing us from being these other things, these other people of somewhere else doing something else. Uh, but we, we would never think that it was the alcohol or the drugs. What, what happened in your life, Scott? And we'll close this segment with this. What were some of the things that led Scotty B to the point where you said, you know what, maybe it is my drinking, maybe it is my drugs, maybe it is all tied to my behavior that is, is the cause of all of this. Can you walk us through what that was like for you? Yes. Um, I, had an, I had an epiphany one time. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to call it an epiphany. Uh, it was called the judge. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the coercion, the right? Coercion, right. The, the yeah. nudge from yeah. the judge. And, yeah. But that happened over and over again yeah. because I spent a lot of time eating bologna sandwiches and doing burpees with the fellows, and I never got it. I never got it. You know, I didn't. I couldn't look and say this happened. That you know, it was bad luck a lot of times. And, right. You know, uh, next time I'll do a left on that street instead of do a right. You know, and I won't get caught by yeah. that. So uh, a lot of that came into play. Um, what, what, made, what finally brought me into recovery was another nudge from the judge. He said, I'll let you out of jail in 10 days 
if you sign this document and you do a program called Proposition 36, and I didn't care what the what the proposition was, and I didn't care what the numeric value was. He said I'd be out in ten days, and I couldn't sign that paper fast enough. <laughs> um, my miracle happened shortly thereafter. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, and so often it it takes that, and you know, and sadly enough, um, some people wouldn't have gotten it. You know, um, some people would have just used it as their get out of jail free card. You know, one of the things that I've been able to do is uh, in Utah is to get uh, qualified and certified to go into prisons. And I hear stories like that from the men and the women on a regular basis and uh, how they just wish that they would have respected that nudge from the judge, you know, because we never know when it's going to be the last nudge. And, And, you know, and the judge just says, you know what, I've given you two, three, four, five chances, and there's just no chances left in the bucket with you. I'm going to give this opportunity to somebody else because obviously, you know, it's not going to be something that you're going to do anything with. And um, and that's unfortunate because, um, you know, we, we know what this disease does. We know how it uh, has no particular uh, position on who it brings down. It crosses all gender, racial, socioeconomic, uh, all of the all of the social levels that are out there. You know, I've known, and so have you, over the years in the rooms of recovery. I've known some very, very rich people who who drink like a like a Skid Row wino. You know, and we've seen them come in all shapes and all sizes. You know. Uh, the most amazing thing is, is that, you know, when we do have that opportunity, you know, and we take it, you know, what happens um, to to our life and the possibilities uh, that can occur. And we'll talk about a lot about that uh, in our next segment. So and just let me add too that, uh, you know, that was one time that I took that, that deal prior to all that. Uh, incarceration was part of my story. Recidivism was part of my life. Right. You know, it's not if, it's when. And uh, so my my thing was, you know, Your Honor, uh, when confronted with a judge and a district attorney and the public defenders, I don't do programs. Uh, indicated sentence would help me out a lot better because I, <laughs> at least I know how long that I can go in and clean up for. And, and then, uh, so we call that institutionalized. Right. Uh, a lot of short, we call it wino time. It's mm-hmm. not years or decades or anything, that, no life terms. Obviously, I'm here. But, uh, you know, it was indicated sentence, Your Honor. Yeah. That got me out of a lot. And then, you know, I would go in, get healthy, uh, eat, eat, like I said, with the fellas, eat the bologna sandwich. I see, I can make a bologna sandwich look like a club sandwich. <laughs> I know how to roll the meat up and then stack it just right. And, uh, you know, get off and do, do the push-ups and stuff and, and play that part. So I ch- chameleon myself in sure. these uh, situations. And uh, what I did learn myself about myself when I was incarcerated, and this, this helped me in life too, to be honest, and I see how everything molded me to this day, is that I had a lot of entitlement. Yeah. And all those entitlements were taken away. Yeah. And uh, at that point in my life, I became a little more humble, but I still had that ego once I hit the door, yeah. I'm out of here. You yeah. know? And uh, that cycle would start again. 
And so with me, um, the miracle did happen. And it wasn't right when I signed on the dotted line for the Prop 36. I used again, because when I get out, I go and use, because I sure. had no tools, no self-defense, yeah. no, you know, there was no armor to have a chink in it, as the book talks about. And so my, my, my being always said, I want to do different. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do different this time. I'm going to start this. I'm going to do that. And all of a sudden, as soon as I hit that door, I forget everything I promised God in there. Yeah. You know, because the guys would come in from AA and NA, and they would minister to us. And I, every time they opened the gate for Baptist church, I don't care what kind of church was there, Catholic church, I would be out that door because I wanted to do something different. I just didn't know how. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And that's, you know, I love how you frame that. Um because we've said in the program, it's not that we wanted to die. Right. We just didn't know how to live. Didn't know how to live. You know, and, and that's why 12 Steps of Recovery aren't designed to teach someone how not to drink or use or overeat or gamble or, 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 you know, engage in pornography or whatever, whatever realm you come from and you're looking for wellness. It's, it's about learning how to live, you know. Now, obviously, we need to set that behavior, that substance aside for the learning how to live can take place. But that's really what we want. And uh, and before we end this segment, Scott, um, tell us how long you've been clean and sober. What is your sobriety date? So my sobriety date, my miracle, is September 21st, 2006. That puts me at 13 years and a few days. But, uh, uh, you know, it's, we always say don't count the years, count the days, because yeah. the days that make it matter. There you go. I appreciate that. So, folks, you know, I really appreciate Scott taking the time to uh, share this. And, 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 and I think it's important that you know that he's been doing this for 13 years. And... And especially for those of you who are new or relatively new to the program of recovery, take it from me, take it from Scott, take it from Jack on his dying bed, said it works because recovery does work. You can transform your life in ways that you only dreamed about. But I'll tell you what, I could have never dreamed that I would have this life. And I was a pretty good dreamer early on and wondering and wishing and hoping for certain things. God, as I understand God, has surpassed all of those hopes and dreams and desires in my personal, professional, spiritual, emotional, and mental life, transcended beyond what I could ever. It's like I dream in black and white and God dreams in color and everything's full and as everything is complete. So we want you to be invited into that. And whether you're less than Scott or more than Scott in your time or or with me, with my time, we're just one big recovery family. And we're going to talk about that in the next segment. So thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Robert. I am the recovery guy. And this has been The Fix. I was trying to do everything.